First time I ever heard about flat earthers was, I think, when I was in space last. I can't believe I'm talking about this. They was well-versed in just about every conspiracy you can think of. Chemtrails, 9-11. Did you know they made up dinosaurs? I completely solved the JFK assassination, which I'll share with you at a different day. And then Mark said that he was a member of the Flat Earth Society. And I said, oh, Mark, what are you on to now? This. This is what it is. Excuse me, anyone ever told you the Earth is flat? I caught his smile and he wasn't buying it. Nobody wants to admit that they've been fooled, but it's happened to every one of us. If you look on Google Trends, it's like spike. There's now flat Earth dating sites. I mean, we've got songs. Why is it expanding the way it is? Right. Get online, you'll see so-called evidence that seems scientific, and you go, huh, maybe they're onto something there. Science is having a problem combating what we're doing because they don't know how to address it. I want to believe this. This doesn't mesh with reality, so don't change my view, change reality. Now we're doing an international conference. It's okay to believe all this is really happening. In a conference, we want to prove there's no curvature. And if we can do that, it's game over. Can we get to the point where it's accepted? So that's a thing. Uh, uh, this is a trailer for a documentary on Netflix called Behind the Curve, or Beyond the Curve. Uh, side note, very entertaining, worth a watch. Uh, but it's about the flat earth movement, this growing movement of people who believe that there is no curvature to the earth, it's, it's flat, and that every tier of society has been lying to us for some nefarious and unknown purpose, uh, and that this is all one vast conspiracy. It's a rather odd way to understand the world, uh, but it's one among many odd ways to think about the world. There are a lot of conspiracies out there, from the earth is flat, to the earth is hollow, and there's actually a little earth inside of it to lizard people have infiltrated the highest echelons of our government and run the world. Um, all of these very odd and unusual ways to view reality. And when you saw this trailer, maybe you asked the same question that I asked. How do people come to believe this sort of thing? That's actually one of the questions that the documentary dives into. Uh, and it's really interesting. You know, it starts really, it really just boils down to what you consume, what kind of information you're taking in. You know, you read something, it sparks your curiosity, so you read a little bit more of it, and then you join a Facebook group where you talk with other people who are reading the same thing, and all of your conversations are only about this one perspective, and everything seems to kind of gel together, and so you start to think, well, maybe this is feasible, maybe this really is the way things work. And it all comes about because we've feasted on an entire diet of this kind of thinking. You kind of are what you eat in that aspect. You know, it, we, this is uh, the theme that we're talking about this morning. You are what you eat. It's part of a series we've been in for several weeks now called Minefield. And in this series, we're talking about this kind of conflict that's happening in our minds every single day between these two different perspectives. On the one hand, we have the typical way of thinking that our world encourages, it's common in our culture, that we're immersed in and exposed to every single day. On the other hand, we have a different way of thinking a different perspective. It's sort of a revealed perspective on what life is and how it really works and what's really happening. It's, it's God's perspective on things. It's a conflict that's uh, brought to our attention in a passage in the book of Romans, chapter 12. Uh, it's sort of been a theme verse for this entire series. It's Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Don't be conformed, or do not conform, rather, to the pattern of this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
And then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. It's this tension between this mindset that we inherit simply by virtue of when and where we live versus this mindset that we uh, uh, come to see or that is revealed to us in the gospel. And we're all caught in the middle trying to discern, okay, what, what is true? Who, who's speaking to me here? What is the right way to think about life and what it's all about and so on? It's a conflict that we oftentimes can get exhausted in. And we've been talking about different patterns of thinking. They're very common in this world, patterns that we've all adopted. And, and our purpose has been to identify these in our lives to see what parts of our minds still need renewed. But today we're going to shift gears a little bit, and we're going to start looking at some more practical things we can do to partner with God in that renewal of our minds, to start being transformed in our thinking. And we're going to start with a concept that we kind of saw evidenced in this documentary. You are what you eat. Or rather, your mind or our minds will become what we feed them. The information that we take in, that we internalize, is going to go a long way in shaping our perspective. And this is actually an idea that's echoed in Scripture, uh, in the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, Proverbs chapter 15, verse 14. It has a little something to say about this. It's a very short proverb, it's only two lines, but the more we mull over it, the more depth we come to see it possesses and the more it speaks to us. It's sort of the nature of Proverbs in general. If you have your Bible this morning, I want to encourage you to open up to Proverbs chapter 15, verse 14. If you don't have your Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind, or you can download the FCC Monmouth app and tap the Sunday button and the navigation bar at the bottom of the screen. Uh, and there you'll find our sermon notes along with our passage pulled up, ready for you to engage with and get the most out of our time together. So let's look at Proverbs chapter 15, verse 14, these two short lines. The discerning heart seeks knowledge, but the mouth of a fool feeds on folly. The discerning heart seeks knowledge, but the mouth of a fool feeds on folly. It's a pretty easy to understand message on the surface. If you are wise, you're going to seek to fill your mind with wisdom and with knowledge. If you're a foolish person, you're going to be content to sort of consume whatever foolishness is presented to you. Or if we were to summarize it, you are what you eat. If we we're going to put it in the context of our passage, or of our series rather, we would say that those who think according to the pattern of this world are content to think according to the world and its pattern. We just keep slurping up what the world gives us. But the discerning heart, the one who seeks a renewed mind and seeks transformation, well, they seek after knowledge. We want to feast on something different. There's a different perspective out there for us. This is a, a, a principle that we see at work in so many different ways in life. There is a perspective that's presented to us. There's a narrative that's presented to us and a way of viewing life that's given to us in the world and in our culture and in its way of thinking. And it isn't something that just applies to flat earth people being caught in an echo chamber. It's something that we all experience in everyday aspects of our lives, deeply personal aspects of our lives, like our identity or our sense of value or our sense of worth. Our world speaks a certain message and a perspective on those things and where those are found. As evidenced in a book written by a scholar named Richard Reeves that recently came out, he writes on the, a growing crisis among uh, boys and men in our current cultural context. It's not one that often gets discussed. Uh, back in 1979, Title IX legislation was passed, and the intent of that was to uh, increase the number of women who were attending college with the thinking that that would increase the number of women in the workforce and sort of close the gender gap uh, in academia and kind of level the playing field. And largely, it, it has worked. In fact, it, it's worked almost a little too well because, as it turns out, ladies, on average, you're just a lot smarter than us. Uh, and so that's why we have an even larger gender gap in the university today, but it's, it's not more men than women, it's exponentially more women than men in college and university campuses. 
It's really difficult for men to get into a good school these days and to land a good job with a good paying wage and salary. In fact, it's almost increasingly challenging. I won't say it's impossible. It's really challenging to make the sort of wage that our fathers and our grandfathers made back in the day with single parent uh, income, or not single parent, but single uh, workers and single income households. And yet the message in our society hasn't really changed that a man's identity, his worth, his value, his sense of accomplishment and peace in this world is wrapped up with his uh, potential to provide or his ability to provide. We call it the breadwinner. And that shouldn't be a problem. I mean, we have an egalitarian society. Who cares if women are making more money as long as all the bills are paid, right? But when society is continually telling you as a young boy and as a young man at a very impressionable age that your worth and identity are all tied up in your ability to provide and to be that breadwinner, and yet it's becoming more difficult to achieve that, it starts to create this sense of angst and this sense of frustration and disillusionment and depression, which is why deaths of drug overdose, alcoholism, and suicide are three times higher in men than they are in women. And it is this growing crisis. And we can point the finger and we can say, well, it's, you know, it's feminism's fault. Some people say that. Or it's, it's legislation's fault. Some people say that. It's the man's fault for not doing more and being more. Some people say that. But at the end of the day, if we want to look at it, the problem seems to be up here. It's this perspective. We've feasted on this idea that my identity, my sense of worth, my value is tied up in what the world tells me it is, rather than this thing that God tells me it is. My belonging to Him, my place in Him, my, my belonging in Christ, my walk with Him, that's where my value comes from. It's an entirely different way of looking at identity and worth and value and it turns out that the more we feast on this world's view and perspective and narrative, the more we come to believe it, the more challenging life becomes. But it's not just a matter of identity. Sometimes it's a matter of life in general. What is life about? How does it work? You know, what, what's the goal for this? Our world has a narrative and a message to speak about that, too. Uh, my wife and I, we were watching a show the other night, and uh, I noted it was an ad came on. It was for some antidepressant medication and I made the comment, it seems like there are more and more ads for antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications, and it seems like there's more and more people who are dealing with these things than there have been in decades past. I'm like, I wonder what caused that. It turns out it's not just an anecdotal observation, it's a statistical observation. There's a, a survey that was done from 2008 all the way through 2017, nine years, uh, in which hundreds of thousands of um, teenagers and young adults were, were surveyed during that time. And what it found was over that nine-year period, there was a 52% increase in the number of teenagers who had been diagnosed with depression. And if you expanded that a little bit and you just asked questions related to are everyday activities becoming increasingly difficult or other uh, statements that are typically um, associated with having depression, that number grew to 71%. And by 28 or 2017, uh, one in five teenage girls admitted to dealing with some serious bout of ongoing depression at some point in the last year. That's a huge number of young people who are dealing with this. And that's quite a sizable increase in such a short amount of time, which naturally begs the question, why? What's causing this? And like all sociological matters, there's probably a lot of factors that play into this, but there was one particular cluster of things that also saw a similar meteoric rise in this nine-year time span, and that was the adoption of smartphones, the adoption of social media, and the number of hours a day spent on social media. 
And correlation is not necessarily causation, but there's a growing body of health and mental health experts coming to consensus that, yes, this is playing a huge role in this meteoric shift and rise that's happening in young people. And by the way, adults, we're vulnerable to this as well. It just happens that teenagers and young adults are particularly vulnerable because of their development, developmental stage. And so we've got to ask, what is it about social media and these things that's, that's lending to this tendency? Well, you got to think about what social media is, what's posted on there, on your Instagram, on your TikToks. Nobody's waking out of bed and like with bed head and morning breath saying, hey world, ready to start the day. Like, that's not what we post on our Instagram, unless we're being ironic. No, we have filtered pictures designed to make us look as perfect as possible. We post the highlights of our day. We, I went on this fantastic trip, or I went on this great vacation, or I went to this crazy concert, or I went to this great new restaurant. Check out this really expensive dish that I got. And this is the kind of stuff that's posted again and again and again. And when we flip through Instagram, we flip through TikTok, we're not watching funny dances, we're looking at the perfection or the facade of perfection that people want to project. And we consume that again and again and again. That becomes our understanding of what life is supposed to be or how it ought to be. And when my life doesn't match that series of perfect images, or I don't have that perfect filtered image, I start to maybe question some things in my life, or maybe I feel this pressure that maybe my life ought to be that, I ought to be attaining this. And the whole experience is leaving an increasing number of young people, 90% of which, by the way, utilize some form of social media, with an increasingly unsatisfied existence, where they feel empty or depressed or anxious or nervous and all of this because our world has a message that it's sending we could point the finger at society we could point the finger at parents but at the end of the day it is a battle of mindsets the world has a message about what it ought to be that doesn't match with any possible reality that we can achieve and yet over here we have this different way of thinking where God says, here's what life is, and here's who you are, and here's what it's all about, and it's really not that filtered facade. It's gritty at times. It's a battle of mindsets. We deal with this as, as adults. We've seen this swing and this tendency in, in the last several years in the political spectrum. The world has a message about how politics ought to filter into our lives. And if you listen to one particular set of voices on one side, you'll be convinced that every Republican is some sort of authoritarian dictator in sheep's clothing. And if you listen to the other echo chamber and the other ideas, you'll be convinced that every Democrat is some sort of murderous baby killer who just wants to mutilate teenage bodies with, with gender reassignment surgery. And in reality, if you go look at your Republican or Democrat neighbor, they're probably neither of these things. But when we listen to this again and again and again, and what the world has to say about the perspective of who people are, it changes how we think and how we see one another. It has impact on our life. This is the pattern of this world, and when we feast on that diet, it's going to shape how our minds operate and think. So if the goal is to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, I think our proverb would encourage us to change what we eat a little bit. That's what happens when you change your diet. You, your body changes. I mean, just take us some literal examples of this. This is a, a woman named Amanda. Amanda lost 132 pounds with Weight Watchers. I'm not a Weight Watchers rep, by the way. Um, they just have great examples of this. She didn't change her exercise regimen. She didn't go to diet pills. She just changed what she was putting in her body, and as a result, her body was transformed. We've got another example. This is a guy named Jeff. Jeff lost 77 pounds on Weight Watchers, which if you do join Weight Watchers, mention my name, I might get a commission. I don't know. Um, 
But Jeff lost 77 pounds. Again, no new exercise regimen, no diet pills. Just He changed what he put in his body. And as a result, his body was transformed. When we change our diet, that's instrumental in transformation. And the same principle applies to our minds. Instead of feasting on what the world offers up to us and its pattern of thinking, if we want to be transformed to think in a godly and God-honoring way, then maybe we ought to change the things we're putting in our minds. But that is a challenge because it's not just going to happen automatically. In fact, our proverb kind of brings that to light, that if we want to change the way we think, if we want to change what we're feeding our minds, it's going to take some intentionality and some purposeful pursuit of truth. Let's look back at Proverbs 15, 14 for a second. When we start to dig into the language of this proverb, here's where kind of the, the wisdom begins to really take root and grow, and we see there's a lot of depths in these two short little lines. The discerning heart seeks knowledge, but the mouth of a fool feeds on folly. Let's take a look at that word feeds for a minute. If we were to go back in our Hebrew Bibles and we were to look at the original word and the way that that word is used in the Old Testament, we'd see that a lot of times it's used to talk about cattle and goats and the way that they graze in the fields, which sort of paints a picture. The fool is like these undiscerning livestock animals that just sort of eats whatever is in front of it. Cows are not exactly discerning. You take them out to a pasture and they eat and they eat and they kind of move as they eat. They're not really paying attention necessarily to where they go. That's not their highest priority. They're just eating whatever is there. Goats, even less discerning than cattle. I've got a favorite story. When I was a kid, uh, my family and I, we went to the St. Louis Zoo. If you've ever been there, they used to have a children's zoo inside. And there was this pen of sheep and goats that you could get in and pet the goats. And all these city kids thought it was crazy, right? When it's like, it's just a goat. But anyway, so we went to the zoo. And I remember being in that pen. And my dad was there. And he had this folded, like, trifold zoo map sticking out of his back pocket. And, of course, this goat comes up and just, yoink, just takes the, the map out, starts eating it. And my dad grabs it. And he's trying to wrestle the map away from the goat, which is a fool's errand. And he finally gave up. And the goat ate the entire map. And I've seen that same scenario play out with countless other families at that zoo time and time again. Goats are not discerning creatures. They'll eat just about whatever is put in front of them. And that's the way the fool is. He just slurps up whatever folly is placed in front of his face, and sometimes that's how our minds can operate. Our world presents us with a narrative or a perspective or a way of thinking, and we say, oh, that sounds great, and we just slurp it right up without ever questioning Look at the, the other example given in our proverb, though. The discerning heart seeks knowledge. Now, the heart in Hebrew thought is not as easily distinguishable from the mind as sometimes we like to make. We always think, well, we think with our brains and we feel with our hearts. In some ancient cultures, they thought with their hearts and they felt with their intestines which you can kind of understand if you've ever like had that first crush, you get butterflies, or when you get really nervous and you feel like you have to poop. That's your emotions, right? You get where the word picture comes from. So the heart and the mind, they're not that easily distinguishable. So the discerning mind, we could say, seeks knowledge. And that word seek is not just a casual perusal, like pop your head in the room and look around one time and see anything and move on. It is an intent search it is to seek in earnest. We're not just kind of settling for whatever's set in front of us. We are searching out what is true, looking for wisdom, insight. It takes discernment. If you've ever seen the, the movie Ratatouille from Disney and Pixar, 
The main character is a, a little rat named Remy, and they live in Paris, France. And being a rat, all of his friends and his family and his, his community, they're all content to eat whatever garbage they find in the trash can or in the dumpster. But Remy can't stand garbage. He's like, we live in Paris, France, surrounded by some of the finest French chefs in the world. I want cuisine. And every time garbage is put in front of him, he wrinkles his nose in disgust because he wants to eat finer things. And that's a great picture of how we ought to be with knowledge, information, and perspectives, and narratives. There is a message set in front of us, and we ought to be discerning enough to distinguish between what is common and what is true. That's a difficult task. It's a task that actually is illustrated in the Bible in one of the earliest churches in the New Testament, the church of Corinth. Uh, They were a church that had a lot of problems. If you read through the first seven or eight chapters, you get a good gist of it. Uh, They were being divided over petty arguments. Uh, They had a prominent case of incest in the church. Uh, Men were frequenting the the temple prostitutes. Uh, They were suing one another. There was a group that was saying, well, you shouldn't be married because Jesus is going to come back soon. If you do get married, you definitely shouldn't sleep with your spouse, which is probably why the guys were going to the temple prostitutes, if we're just being honest. There was this division that was happening between rich or poor, where where at communion time, the rich would gather and they would feast and get drunk on the communion wine while the poor just sort of wrestled for the scraps. Like, it was messed up. And you might ask yourself, like, how does a church fall into such disarray? And the answer has to do with this, honestly. There was a lot of worldly thinking and worldly perspective that was influencing how they practiced their faith and their lives. In fact, it was kind of sloganized, this common but poor thinking. When we look at chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, it says this in verse 12, I have the right to do anything. That was kind of the slogan. That was the common line. I have the right to do anything. But the Apostle Paul responds, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything. But Paul responds, I will not be mastered by anything. I have the right to do anything. If you have an older translation, it might say, everything is permissible, which I kind of prefer that translation. Everything's permissible for me. And and the thinking was this, Jesus died on the cross to forgive me of my sins and set me free, right? And I've given my heart and my spirit over to Jesus. I am saved. Therefore, it doesn't really matter if I have sin in my life anymore because I'm forgiven. I'm free to do what I want. And the argument that Paul is saying, is, okay, here's this common thinking. Yes, you're free, but is what you're doing beneficial? Because freedom is not the highest priority. Pleasing our Lord, that's the highest priority here. You see that later in in that second saying, everything's permissible for me, but I'll be mastered by nothing, he says. You have a master that you answer to. You have a shepherd and a Lord that you belong to. How are you most benefited in following him? Is it through sin and revelry? Is it through righteousness and holiness? See, Paul is kind of challenging the church to think a little more discerningly and to separate what is merely common thinking and what is true and what is right and what is appropriate for those who follow Jesus. It's the challenge of living in this world and yet not living like this world. You probably have heard it, we're in the world but not of the world. It's, It's that challenge. This is where we live and we are surrounded by a worldly perspective every day. When we wake up and we check our email or we check our web browser for headlines or we open that newspaper or we turn on the news and watch what happened last night or what's happening today. When we get in the car and turn on the radio or we listen to that podcast, when we go to, the, to work and we talk to people at the water cooler or wherever, we're surrounded by this perspective. 
This idea, this narrative, this way of thinking that's so common in this world, and the challenge is separate and discern what is common from what is true, from what is beneficial, from what is faithful, from what adheres to this renewed life that we've been given. And therein lies the challenge. It's the million-dollar question. How do we actually do that? That's what we're talking about for the rest of this series, really. We could talk about how we can change our diet, start eating better things, putting better things in our minds, and we will. We'll do that in two weeks. But today, with the short time that we have left, I thought it would be most beneficial to talk about how maybe we can cut the junk food out of our lives. What are some easy steps we can take to renew the way we think, to, to cut out this, this stuff that clutters, this common fodder? And the Church of Corinth and the situation there, it actually provides some pretty good questions for us to ask because the things Paul is challenging them with are still beneficial in our lives today. For instance, they say, everything's permissible for me, but he asks, not everything is beneficial. So is something beneficial to our walk with Christ? That's one question that we can ask. The stuff that I'm, I'm consuming, that I'm putting in my mind, is it benefiting my walk with Jesus or is it hindering me in some way? That's a super important question. And the church of Corinth, it was their, their bodies and the way they were using their bodies that was such a hindrance. And in this particular context, it was sexual immorality. And for us today, it may still be a challenge of the body, just a different body part. Maybe it's our eyes. Or maybe it's our ears. Or how I'm using these things or what I'm subjecting them to. Is that beneficial to my walk with Christ? For instance, the eyes. We consume a lot of media. We watch movies. We watch television shows. We watch you know, videos on the internet. We read magazines and pictures, everything. And in all of those media and those depictions, there are things that may or may not be beneficial to our walk with Christ. Something maybe we're desensitized to is the amount of violence in our media. As people who are people of the gospel, who have been saved by Jesus, we have this biblical view of the human person that the body is a sacred thing. Christ died in the flesh that we might be redeemed, that we might be given a new body someday. The body is an important thing. So when we watch movies or we watch media where the body is mutilated or where it's desecrated, where it was disrespected, is that helping us adhere to this value? Is that bolstering this biblical message that the human body matters or is that polluting our minds and leading us to think about the body in maybe less than godly ways? Or maybe it's sex. As people of the gospel, we adhere to this particular view of sex, that God intended for it to be practiced within the confines of marriage between a man and a woman, and that is a beautiful gift, and that anything outside of that is not God's intention for that gift. So the depictions of sex that we view in media, are those bolstering that truth, or are we feeding our mind junk food that makes it more and more challenging to adhere to that biblical reality? What we feed our minds matters, because it changes how we think. Or maybe it's our, our ears Maybe it's what we listen to. For me, I'm a podcast guy. I love podcasts. I listen to them when I do the dishes, when I mow the yard, pretty much any chance I get. And my particular poison, I like podcasts that deal with culture and headlines and politics and the whole mismatch of all that stuff. But I have noticed that I have to limit how much of that I listen to. Because while I may agree with 80% of the things that my favorite podcasters have to say, there's 20% that does not gel with my faith. And sometimes it's not the information they present. Sometimes it's the way it's presented. It may be a little jaded or cynical or antagonistic. maybe a little cruel or snide at times. And I've noticed that if I subject my ears to that too much, I begin to think in those ways or I begin to feel those ways. And so for me, I have to put up a guard and say this far and no further, this much and no more. 
Maybe that's the same for you. Maybe it's a podcast. Maybe it's your favorite late-night TV show. Maybe it's your music. I don't know. But are how I'm using my ears, what I'm filling them with, benefiting my walk with Christ? If it's not, maybe it's time to put up some boundaries and cut out some junk food. There's another question Corinth presents us with. This is a question of Christ's authority. Remember, they said, everything's permissible for me. But Paul says, I'll be mastered by nothing, implying we already have a master. The idea in Corinth was that what I do with my body doesn't matter. Because I'm a spiritual being, and my spirit is right with God. So my physical body is not really that important. And they even had another slogan that sort of illustrated this in verse 13. It says, you say, food for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. Meaning, you know what? The body is made to do body things, and it's going to be destroyed when it's all said and done, so it doesn't matter. I'm good with Jesus. My spirit is free. But Paul responds to that. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. In other words, implying, look, what your body does actually is important to Christ. In fact, your body belongs to Christ now. Because Christ came in the flesh and died on the cross so that you could be redeemed. Not so you could be some spirit in the sky and a kingdom on the clouds, but so you could be made a resurrected person, just like Jesus was resurrected, that you could live in a new kingdom on earth that he promises to bring in the book of Revelation. We are physical beings, and what we do with our body matters. And that means that if there's a part of our lives that's being segregated from Jesus' authority, maybe that ought to be cut out of our lives as well. Like maybe for you, it, it's work. You know, I'm a, I'm a believer in my heart. I live according to Jesus. When I'm at home, I live according to Jesus. When I'm on the road, I don't even get angry when I drive. But when I go to work, my boss, he says, well, you know, you got to make this sale, so leave your faith at home. And I keep my nose down, I do what I got to do, just to do what I got to do at work. But then when I leave, I'm all Jesus all the time. Maybe there's part of our life that doesn't fit under Jesus' authority because of some worldly mindset that we're getting. Or maybe it's a relationship, you know? Maybe you got a strained relationship with your spouse or with your kids or with a friend. And like 99% of your life, Jesus has total control over. But when it comes to this relationship, you've got some advice that maybe isn't the most godly, but you think it might work. And so you say, you know, Jesus, you have 90% of my life, but this... I'm just going to do this my way, and we're cutting something out of his authority. If we're listening to voices or recommendations or whatever that encourages that sort of bifurcation of our faith and life, that's maybe the junk food we ought to cut out, because we have a master, and he owns the entirety of who we are. The one last question we can ask ourselves, this one has to do with our relationships with people, is what I'm consuming leading me to view others in an unchristlike way. This was happening in Corinth as well. If we were to skip over to chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, that slogan shows back up. Everything is permissible for me. And this time, it's in the context of meat sacrificed to idols. There's some in the church that saw no problem eating this. There's some in the church that had a big problem eating this. And those who had a stronger conscience looked down on those who struggled, as if their faith were somehow lesser. And their maturity was somehow lesser and that they were some sort of second-tier Christian because I have the confidence to do whatever I please. Everything's permissible for me. And that division is happening because of this mindset. If there's a mindset causing us to look down on people in an unchristlike way, maybe we ought to question whether or not we should entertain that voice anymore. And this is a really challenging one in our day and age. Because there's so much in our cultural conversation that encourages this sort of division and looking down on one another. 
call it wokeism, you can call it cultural Marxism, you can call it all kinds of different things, but it, it focuses on dividing people and viewing them according to their race, their ethnicity, their class, their heritage, their history, whatever. And we're supposed to look at these people and, and maybe blame them for things they've never done and almost despise them and encourages division if we adhere to this mindset. But here's the trick. If we don't adhere to this mindset, there's a temptation to look down on those who do as deceived or as foolish or as illogical or irrational or backwards or, or pick your poison. No matter how you slice it, there's this strong temptation in our culture today to look down on other people because of their ideology or the way that they think and to think of them somehow lesser. That's all the same pattern of this world way of thinking. And the only way to escape it is to adopt a renewed way of seeing one another. One that's not found in the current cultural conversation, but one that's found in one of the oldest and most popular texts of the Bible. I probably don't even need to give the reference to you. For God so loved the world, not the big ball of dirt, but the people of the world, that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever should believe in him should not perish, but have life everlasting. That passage has such a profound message for us and how we see people in this world because regardless of ideology or ethnicity or history or heritage or class or whatever, God looked upon all of us with the immense compassion and mercy that only he can possess. And out of the most intense love that we could ever imagine, chose to send his only son to serve as a sacrifice on our behalf. It was incredibly costly, and yet he deemed us worth that. And that's true for you, but it's also true of everyone else in this room. It's true of everybody not in this room. It's true of all the people that we have conversations with who think differently than us, or look differently than us, or belong to a different strata of our culture than us. It's true of all the people of this world. When God looks at them, he sees them with this incredible compassion and love, and a renewed way of thinking does so also. It's a challenge. And it's a mindset that won't be adopted by listening to the continual narrative and pattern of this world, but by feeding our minds something new, something renewing. There's three simple questions. Is this benefiting my walk with Christ? Is this challenging Jesus' authority over my whole life? And is this causing me to view other people in an unchristlike manner? If the answer to any of those questions is yes, maybe that's the sort of junk food that ought to be limited in our diets. Because if we can learn to limit that and to feast instead on the wisdom and on the truth of God's ways, we will be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Because after all, you are what you eat. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth, for your wisdom, and your patience with us as we seek to follow you more faithfully and to experience the full richness that you intend for us to have as we walk with you, we just ask that you would help us to be discerning, that we would begin to identify patterns in this world that are contrary to you, that we would reject them and instead favor what you reveal to us about life and about ourselves and about our neighbors, about what life is all about, about who you are and who we are. We know that in Christ you have redeemed us and made us new, but Father, we seek to have a new understanding as well, that we might taste and see your goodness and share it with those around us. Renew our minds, Father. 
In Christ's name we pray.